you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Titus. Titus in the New Testament, one of the pastoral epistles written by the Apostle Paul. And this morning, as Dr. David said, the theme of our service and even the title of the message is Transformed by Grace. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, I, I want us to look at what this text speaks about as the, uh, the advent of Christ or the return of Christ. And so <clears throat> the first coming, it highlights, it highlights the first coming, and it also speaks about the second coming of Christ. And, and really, Paul is, is kind of challenging us. He's challenging Titus, and he's, we're challenged as well as we read this text to say, how are we to live in the midst of this world between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And so it's fitting for us to be looking at this text this morning because we're finishing Christmas where we celebrate what? The first advent. And then we're also approaching this new year. And, and you know, as we approach the new year, there, there, uh, there are themes of hope and joy and themes of recommitment, right? As we recommit to diet plans that we've fallen off from the year before. Or, or we recommit to, uh, to just new things. Uh, and so... As we approach this text this morning, we see that Paul is encouraging Titus and telling Titus to teach the word. Uh, Teach the word to the people and then teach the implications of what what the word means in our daily lives. and, And encourage the people, exhort the people how they are to live by faith in God and what that means for their daily lives. And so in verse 11 through 14, I want to invite you to follow as I read along from Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word and open our hearts, Lord, to love the truth of your word, our minds to comprehend your word Lord, give us a desire, we pray, to apply your word into our lives. And we, we even say now, Lord, that we, we submit ourselves to you and we ask that you would do a work in our own hearts and lives, applying your word by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we give you freedom, free reign to move in our hearts and our minds today. And we ask, God, that you would be exalted in each of our lives today. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The epistle of Titus, as I said a moment ago, it's known as a pastoral epistle. But Paul is writing to his, uh, his young disciple or a young pastor named Titus. And in writing to him, he, he's writing so that Titus would set in order things which, uh, which he left behind. And so Paul says in Titus 1.5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. There were new churches that had been started, and 
Paul and his missionary team had gone through and they had started these churches and left Titus in place in order to set elders over each of the churches so that the, the churches could grow in the grace of God and could learn how as new believers to live this Christian life and to grow in, in Christian discipleship. And really, that's the same need that that we have in one sense, right? That we need to grow in our understanding of God's word, how God's word applies to our lives, and how we are to live out God's word day to day, every day in our lives. So it's in this context that Titus teaches the various groups, social groups, the demographic groups within the church. So verse 11 really kind of points us back to verses 1 through 10 in one sense to see who are these groups that... He's addressing within the congregation. So verse 2, you see, chapter 2, verse 2, older men, verse 3, older women, verse 4, young women, verse 6, younger men, right? Verse, uh, verse 9, slaves, or we might understand as employees, how we are to, to, to live out in this employee and work relationship. And so this morning, I, I want us to see how the appearance of grace transforms our lives through salvation and the, the, the appearance of grace reforms our lives through, uh, through training us. So first, let us see the appearance of grace transforms and reforms our lives in verses 11 and 12. Paul's just finished giving instruction on Christian living, really amongst the body of Christ. And in essence, he's saying to the church, church, this is how you ought to live in verse 11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This phrase might seem to be a little bit odd, for the the grace of God has appeared. Well, what does that look like? God's grace appearing. Uh, Grace seems to be something that's not very visible, right? But, but, But appearance denotes that it would be visible. And certainly he's talking here about Christ. Christ himself has come. In fact, Paul uses this phrase, for the grace of God has appeared 14 different times in his epistles. And this word appeared, then, it it refers to Christ or his first coming. And it's the appearance of the hope of the gospel. Jesus appeared, and in his appearance, he brought deliverance from bondage to sin. And in 2 Timothy 1.9, the Apostle Paul has already written about God. God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so here's the question. How does the appearance of grace transform our lives? We know that he's talking about Christ and his coming, but how does the appearance of grace transform our lives? The first way, the appearance of grace, okay, that's Christ. The first way it transforms our lives is through salvation. He transforms our lives through salvation. That's what verse 11 is saying. Bringing salvation for all people. But when we speak of salvation, what do we what are we saved from? Well, we're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from God's wrath being poured out on our sin. And so when we speak of salvation, we're speaking of a person who is birthed into God's kingdom, as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter three, that you must be born again. 
And being born again or being birthed into God's kingdom involves confessing our sin. It involves repenting from our sin. It involves believing in Jesus as the one true God. Jesus Christ has come and what we just celebrated in the baby in the manger. And so the grace of God transforms the lives of all who are born again. And as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, all those who are born again, they become a new creation, right? The old is gone, new has come. And so, so this idea of being transformed by the grace of God, by Christ's coming, is that he makes us through salvation into a new creation. You see, this is God's eternal plan of redemption. His eternal plan of redemption involved Christ coming in the cradle and then leading and journeying through his life to the cross. Because the career of Christ was to live a sinless life so that he might reveal the glory of the Father to us, his people. And so we learn who God is through Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people, he's speaking of the life and the ministry of Christ. Verse 14 clarifies it for us more. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. You see, our redemption is from every lawless deed. Christ has saved us. He's redeemed us. He's purchased us. Every evil, wicked, or sinful deed. We were purchased through what he says here in verse 14. Christ giving of himself for us. This is also known as the Christ becoming our substitute of the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. Christ became our substitute. He took my place on the cross, suffering under God's wrath, that I might have salvation. I want to submit to you that this is grace. That which I don't deserve, but Christ has given it to me. So the appearance of grace is that Christ has stepped into our lives, into our our world. And he's done it to redeem us. That is to set us free from bondage to sin. He liberates us from the control of sin. From every form of it, here's what Christ does. He liberates you. Liberates me. I love the story. I've shared it before, but maybe not everybody has heard it. I I love the story about redemption of the little boy who had a boat. He had built this sailboat. He spent all this time working with his own hands to build this sailboat. And he had a string attached and he's having fun with it one day uh, as he's, he's, uh, he's holding the string and it's in the river. And all of a sudden a big gust of wind comes and it pulls the string out of his hand. And the boat starts drifting down the stream until ultimately he can't keep up with it. He loses it. A couple days later, he's walking through town and he sees in the store window of this shop the boat that he had made it look like the boat. He walks in, he begins to look at it, and yes, this is the boat that I made. And he begins to tell the shop owner of his story. The shop owner is not interested. He said, son, if you want to buy the boat, here's the price. And so the young boy takes off. He goes home. He, he grabs his piggy bank. He turns it upside down. He starts shaking it out, and he searches every corner of the sock drawer trying to find the change that he had. And he, he grabs every penny that he owns. And he takes it and he goes back to the shop owner 
And he sets it on the counter and says, this is everything that I own. I'm giving you everything. I'll take my boat now. And as the shop owner hands the boat over to the little boy, he, he's got this big grin from ear to ear, and he's hugging it. And he walks out the store, and he says, you're twice mine. First I made you, and now I've bought you. And this is the picture of redemption. God, our creator, has made us. And though we've transgressed God's holy law and we've sinned against him, he's purchased us back for himself. We were lost, but now we've been found and he's bought us. And he bought us through the mission of Christ in the world who came first in the cradle and then he went to the cross. You see, this redemption is for all people. Look at what he says in verse 11. Bringing salvation for all people. This means all ethnicities, every nation, every people group. He has brought redemption, salvation for all people, all, both genders, male and female. No distinction between slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile. This salvation, this redemption that Christ has purchased of our souls, it knows no barriers. And for all who believe in him, the appearance of grace transforms our lives through salvation. It's through Christ that we are made new. But here's the thing. It must begin with conversion. If it doesn't begin with conversion, then every other thing we do, every good work we might do, everything we would try to accumulate into our, on our, on maybe on our scales, it, it would not add up to bring salvation and to give us favor in the eyes of God. What must first happen is conversion. There must be a new birth. There must be a transformation in our lives And so the appearance of grace transforms us first through salvation. But secondly, the appearance of grace reforms our lives through training. So how does the appearance of grace reform our lives? It reforms our lives through training. Look at what he says in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Those who have finished school, how long did it take you to go through school? Right. Each one of us a different time, maybe. If you're like me, it, it took me five years to put the four-year degree in in my undergrad. Um, masters took a little bit of time, not as much, thankfully. Uh, but but how, how long did it take you to go through school? Children, some, you're, you're still in school, right? You're, you're being trained. This is the idea. We're learning. We're, we're being trained. Some of us are still in school working on, on advanced degree. And, and so there's this idea of we're, we're being trained. We're growing. We're being sharpened and, and shaped. It's kind of like when we're babies, infants, we need someone to take care of us and to teach us and to train us how to walk, how to clothe ourselves, how to bathe, how to keep clean, how to eat. We, we learn all of these things. You, you get the point. But here's what Paul is advocating for the people of God, for the community of faith. God's word and the community of faith are part of this training process that each disciple of Christ must go through. And so this is the work of the gospel in reforming our character to match Christ's character. 
It's like on-the-job training as we're living our daily lives. God's Word is at work in us, and God's Word is at work in us because of the community of faith that we live in, because of disciples sharpening and shaping one another. And so there's this training that he's calling the church to. Look in verse 3 of chapter 2. Older women likewise should be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Older men are to be sober-minded, verse 2, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and in steadfastness. Likewise, younger men urge the younger men, rather, verse 6, to be self-controlled. And look, verse 7, so that show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and so on. And so there's this idea of training and growing and, and being sharpened and being shaped by the community of faith and by the word of God. And so how does the appearance of grace reform our lives? Well, through a training process. And how does that happen? It happens in our in our daily lives as we walk by faith. First, there's an admonish a, a negative admonishment. He says in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, right? There's this speaking and and denouncing it, or denying, refusing to pay attention to, giving up ungodly and worldly desires. Uh, These ungodly and worldly desires or passions, they're, they're the very things that characterized our lives before our salvation, before the transformation. But what's interesting here is those things don't just go away, right? No, we have to work diligently at them. We've got to deny them and and push them aside. We've got to pursue Christ, and as we're pursuing Christ, we're actively pushing aside these sinful desires and and passions or these ungodly desires that that tend to still creep up sometimes. We have to work hard at this. This is part of training. That's why in training you, you get multiple, you get repetitions, right? You don't just learn Right from the beginning, you, you, need to, you need to have repetition. And this is part of God's grace toward us. But, but here's what we're to do. We're to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Here's the thing. Ungodliness is the root problem in our lives. It's a root problem because we're not like God in our character and we're not like him in our morality. God's holy. I'm sinful. He's pure, right? I'm, I'm foolish. I'm entrapped by the desires of my flesh. I'm like the kid in the candy store whose mom says, don't, don't go and eat the candy. What do I do? I go and eat the candy. Disobey. I, I'm like the child that needs to be trained. and That's, that's what he's saying here. Renounce ungodly ungodliness and and worldly passions. It speaks to both our our thoughts and our actions, the things we think and the things we do. One writer quipped, it's not the ship in the water, but the water in the ship that sinks it. So it's not the Christian in the world, but the world in the Christian that constitutes the danger. You see, so we're to deny ungodliness and, and worldly passions. Ungodliness shows itself in the form of worldly desires. And so he's saying, give up these things. Give up the the lazy way. Give up being the thief, the drunkard, the womanizer, the addict, the the liar. 
right? Give up being the gossiper, the manipulator, the slanderer. Put all those things aside. Shove them aside. So it's not only in our actions, also in our thoughts. Because here's the thing, the reforming work of Christ in our lives is training us how to live. And as we grow in Christ, the Holy Spirit doesn't just focus on those negative things to deny these, but also teaches us how to live positively. So the battle oftentimes is waged in the mind. And it's in the mind where we engage and and seek to follow God and submit ourselves to God's rule, God's leadership. 2 Corinthians 10.5 We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking captive every thought for the obedience of Christ. Our Paul exhorts the Colossians in Colossians 3.2 Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Right? Where our minds are, there. that's where Jesus says where our minds are, there our hearts will be also. And so the second exhortation is is that we would we would walk in Christ and Christ instructs us how to pursue holiness. And here's how Christ transforms and reforms us in these three areas. He says in verse 12 that we be self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. These are the ideas of first toward Self, toward our own self, this idea of living self-controlled. Self-control being a fruit of the Spirit. It means we're not mastered by the passions and and, and desires of the flesh or the worldly ways. No, we're, we're mastered by one. We're mastered by God. We're not mastered by our appetites, right? We're mastered by pursuing Him. How many of you ate too much over the holiday? Raise your hand. How many of you wanted to eat too much? Oh, you did? Well, that, that's bad. I didn't want to eat too much, but I guess in a roundabout way I did because I ate too much, right? Uh, no, no, see, we, we have to master our appetites. If we master our appetites, then it shows that God is the one who's in control of us. It's not just dealing with food, right? This is with all areas of life. So to be self-controlled is one who has, who has this integrity of heart and, and wants to please God in all things and wants to follow God in all things. But also toward others, he says, to live uprightly. Living uprightly means living justly, wanting to enact justice on behalf of others, looking for the greater good of, of, of all people, being those who are just in our, our dealings. Those who are serving others, serving as the hands and feet of Christ. Speaks to the quality of our character. And so God is reforming. Get the picture. The word of God, by the power of Christ saving us, is reforming our character. Teaching us to be self-disciplined by the spirit of God and the power of God. Teaching us to live uprightly in a way that's pleasing and glorifying to God. Teaching us to live Godly, that is, in relation to pursuing God, following Him wherever He leads us, growing in our our discipleship, our walk with Him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. This is on-the-job training. We're being trained to live for Christ. We're being trained to live in a way that is godly, self-controlled, that's upright, the personal reformation in a believer's life 
It's constant. It's always happening. We're being trained to deny ungodliness and say no to sin and say yes to holiness. And if the believer in Christ is living in pursuit of worldly desires, then we can be assured that as believers we're not living in pursuit of God because the two are opposites. It's like the coin. When heads is up, tails is down. When pursuing God is up, then pursuing the worldly passions is down. It's put down. The question is, why is it important? And I think the answer to why it's important is because God's eternal plan of redemption is now lived out through you and me as the church. God desires to work in and through us as the church to reach the world who is in also in desperate need of reformation and of redemption through Christ. And Paul knows what we all know. The world will seek to use any way possible to discredit the gospel and to point out faults in the lives of believers. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2, he's already said, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You see, in this present age, we need to recognize that Christ saves us for the present age and teaches us how to live now. And this fits with Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so as believers, we're to remain vigilant, watching our lives and learning by the grace of God in community with one another and learning from Scripture as the Holy Spirit teaches us how to live lives that are marked out by self-control, by upright and godly living. This ought to be the fitting picture of the church of God's people. So Christ saves us from the present age and teaches us how to live now, but Christ saves us as well for a future hope. And this is the second point of the message this morning, that we eagerly wait for his glorious appearance. We eagerly wait for his glorious appearance. God's grace came first in Christ, our Savior, our Deliverer. Look at what he says in verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when he came the first time, he came as our Savior, as our Deliverer. He came with grace. But get the picture, when he comes the second time, he'll come with with radiant splendor and glory. He turns to the future hope of our salvation, the glorious desire that we should have and the great expectation that we should have. He says, waiting for our blessed hope. This word hope, uh, I want you to know it's not, it's not like what we say when we sit down to watch the saints play or LSU play, right? That, that's not what this hope is talking. It's not something that might or might not happen. Those are big hopes that are filled with uncertainty. But this hope that he's talking about, it's filled with great certainty. We can know for certain, for sure, that Christ is returning. This hope is certain and it's fixed on the, the sovereign ruler of creation. Look at what he says there, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. You see, deity is ascribed to Christ here. The great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches that we're to be eagerly and expectantly waiting. That's the language of verse 13. We're looking forward to the return of Christ, that day when Christ will return and will make all things new. He speaks of this hope as a blessed hope. It's blessed because he speaks of the righteousness of Christ. This righteousness of Christ through salvation has been made available to all those who believe in him. And it's actually been made ours. We, we have the righteousness of Christ who are in Christ. Those who have been transformed through salvation. And what's significant about Christ's righteousness is when we stand in God's presence, we don't stand condemned as those who are enemies of God. We stand blessed as those who are children children of God. We stand there ready to receive the inheritance of, of eternal life. And so he says, in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, This appearing that he's speaking about here in verse 13, it parallels what he says in verse 11. But the one was grace coming to us, and now it will be glory coming to us. And the day will soon come. And so he says we are to wait expectantly. We learn in verse 14 that the first coming was to redeem and to purify for himself a people, listen, for his own possession. You know that you're not your own. If you're converted to Christ, if if Christ has saved you, you're not your own. We belong to him. We are his possession. And he says we're to be zealous for good works. That's eager and enthusiastic about engaging in what he has called us to do. So the question is, how do we eagerly wait for his glorious appearance, as verse 13 suggests? And I think simply put, we could say we're to be about the father's business. That shows an eager waiting. That shows that we are eagerly waiting and ready for Christ to return, for his second coming. A lady once asked John Wesley if he knew what he would do if he died at midnight the next day. How would he spend the intervening time? He replied, why, madam, just as I intend to spend it now, I would preach this evening at Gloucester, Gloucester, and again at five tomorrow morning, and then after I would ride to the next neighboring village and preach in the afternoon and meet the societies in the evening. I would then go to Martin's house, talk and pray with the, with his family as usual. Then I would retire myself to my room at ten o'clock, commend myself to my heavenly Father, lie down, rest, and wake up in glory. What's the point? I think the point is we must learn to view the daily routine of life as the very mission that God has called us to in the world. And in it, we're to be zealous for good deeds. In the very things that we do every day, day in and day out, we are to view this as God's work in and through us. He is placing us where He wants us to be, how He wants us to be used for His glory. And so our lives must be sold out to Christ Because why? We've been purchased by Christ. So that in our work or in our our play, our recreation, we're discovering new ways, differing ways to bring glory to God and to shine the light of Christ into the lives of men and women. And so he says to the older men, to the older women, to the younger men, to the younger women, to slaves, the employees, to each of us, 
that in all that we do, we're seeking to bring God glory. We're, we're seeking to do these works. We're zealous for good works. And this shows the eager expectation for Christ's return. We eagerly wait for his glorious appearance through the accomplishing of his work in the world. And that fleshes out in a myriad of different ways. It fleshes out in our parenting. It fleshes out in our in our work environments and the, the, the businesses we own or the um, the relationships we've been entrusted with, the neighborhoods we live in. and In so many ways, we as God's people are to be zealous for good works in all that we do so that why? We bring glory to God. And so the appearance of grace transforms our lives through salvation. The appearance of grace reforms our lives through training and teaches us how to eagerly wait for His glorious appearance through the accomplishing of His work in the world. The question we need to consider this morning is, are we eagerly awaiting Christ's return? And by that we mean, are we zealous for good deeds that Christ has called us to, to walk in? What does that look like in our daily lives? How are we, how are we doing that? Are we zealous for the good works in accomplishing Christ's mission? Maybe this morning, Christ is calling you into relationship with him for the first time. Has Jesus transformed your life first through salvation? Have you been created anew? You received a new birth that scripture talks about? Christian, is your life being reformed by Christ Day in and day out, are you being sharpened in the community of faith? Are you growing in your relationship with Christ, studying his word, allowing the Holy Spirit to teach you, submitting yourself to the truth of of his word? I want to challenge us this morning as we close our service through singing praise to God to consider how the Lord is calling us to respond to his word today. Are we being reformed in our personal lives with Christ, in our personal devotion? Are we being transformed? Have we been transformed? Have you been transformed by the grace of God through his appearance? Are you ready for the second coming? For Christ's return, what would be glorious? I want to pray, and this morning you respond as the Lord leads you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the salvation that you have given us in Christ. You have purchased us. You've redeemed us. You've made us yours. And so, Lord, we want to live for you and for your glory. God, we want our lives to be a a radiant and shining example to the world around us. But, Father, we, we don't want to be mastered by anything but only serve you. And so, God, teach us. Continue to do this work of reforming in our lives and give us give us an understanding of our sin that we might repent of it that we might walk faithfully with you lord if there's anyone this morning who is struggling to surrender their lives to you i pray that you would strengthen them to do that that they would turn their lives over to you and become a new creation in christ for it's in christ's name we pray amen